0: So a couple of months ago, instead of having a sermon, we had a conversation. Uh, My friend Danielle came and we had a wonderful conversation about Exodus. And lots of people seem to like a conversation more than just listening to me talk for half an hour. I don't know why that might be. Uh, (laughs) But following this advice, I thought, you know what, let's do that again. And so this week, Bill Ryan and I are, you know, Bill Ryan, you just start coming forward now. Uh, Bill Ryan is an elder at this church. I know you've been a friend of mine, a mentor of mine. You know, we're pretty tight, I guess. <laughs> I like Bill a lot. And a couple of months ago when we were working out the schedule for this series, Bill said, I really, like, I really want to talk about the mercy seat, James. I really want to talk about the mercy seat. And I was like, oh, Bill, I really want to talk about the mercy seat. That's like the one thing I have underlined. That's the only thing I really want to preach out this entire book. Uh, and then I said, you know what, you can have it, and then we decided that, that we'd have a conversation because basically we were both just so excited about this. Uh, so we're hoping that our inf- enthusiasm is infectious today. Hey, Bill, why don't you pray for us before we go begin? God, this morning
1: we come to you humbly seeking to understand more of who you are. And God, we pray that as we have this conversation as as each person listens in, that, uh, that they too will, will, will leave here today thinking, Wow, isn't our God awesome? We pray this in Jesus' name, who is
0: the most awesome. Amen. Amen. So, for those of you that are just joining us, we've been going through the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is an incredible story, and we see this amazing display of God's power. Pa- I know, it's awkward, isn't it? <laughs> We see this amazing display of God's power. We see God's faithfulness. We see God's listening to God's people over and over again, hearing their cries of oppression, which is a pretty exciting stage to set. Uh, But I will say that Exodus takes, I mean, I don't want to say like a downturn, but like that's how I felt when, I don't know, when I first became a Christian, I'm like, I am going to read all of the Bible from start to finish, and it's going to be great. And like legitimately the back half of Exodus is where I, stopped, like I didn't get very far, <laughs> but like, I'm going to read the gospel again. Uh, we go from this incredible, like, mythical, sorry, not mythical, but like epic story, uh, and then it shifts to, like, a kind of construction manual, which doesn't feel quite as interesting, and I don't like Ikea, and so... I don't really like the back end of Exodus either, uh, but getting to know just what this means is what felt so exciting. So, I'm going to read our scripture, and then we'll, we'll get into it. So, I'm going to read from Exodus 25 today, uh, starting at verse 10, and it's possible that listening to this doesn't feel particularly exciting to you, and that's okay, <laughs> but we promise, at least we hope, you're going to be excited by the end of it. So, Exodus 25, starting at verse 10, says this. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give to you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim over the hammered gold of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub at one end and the second cherub at the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on the top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony, which I will give to you. There, are the there above the cover, between the two cherubim, that are over the Ark of the Testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites.
1: So I imagine at this point in time, everybody out there is going, why are these two wanting to fight over this passage of Scripture? <laughs> um, because it, it, you're right, it, it, it's, it's just basic instructions on how to build uh, a covenant box. Um, and And it's it's pretty straightforward. They were given some leeway that doesn't describe exactly what a cherub looks like. Uh, but the artists were were to take the, these instructions and form this box uh, that we put the the Ten Commandments, the tablets, inside. It was probably about if you look at the top of this table over here. Um, where the projector is sitting, that's approximately two and a half cubits by a cubit and a half. A a cubit is around 18 inches, so if you figure that out, that's about the size we're we're actually thinking about here. It's interesting that um, in different translations it's called different things, so I, I believe you called it an atonement cover. Was that the one in that reading?
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: Uh, some other translations call it the mercy seat. And as you, as you picture this being built, um, you, you get an idea of, of the size, you get an idea of, of two angels with their wings spread over top of it. And then you, 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 you look at it and you see it's a portable Box that has poles that to make it uh, able to be carried because remember they were people living uh, in tents they were journeying through the desert regions of of, um, of the Middle East and so they they were moving around so it had to be portable there it says uh, towards the end it, it says there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law. I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the
0: Israelites. That's the exciting part. Go ahead. <laughs> Tell us why it's exciting. Why is it exciting. Oh, man. Um, no, you go. I, I'm bottled up. You go. <laughs> Imagine
1: for a moment. This is where the people of Israel, represented by the high priest, would meet with God. This is the meeting place. Now, inside that box is the Ten Commandments, the law of the people. And, and this box, it, it's actually describing a portable throne. That God symbolically would be found there and they would meet with God uh, as he sits on his throne. And so the, the people are coming together and the laws are there. The laws representing how we should live together as a community.
0: What we saw is uh, translated as testimony. Would have been the Ten Commandments, like the two slabs of stone that have yes. those Ten Commandments on them.
1: And and so, now if 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 you know anything about the Near Eastern uh, understanding of, of of their community and and king, um, the king would sit upon the throne. And when the king was there on the throne, that's when he made judgments on the people you remember the laws are in the underneath where God would was supposedly figuratively sitting representing the commands that were given they were to obey and now God is sitting on top of that and he is now to be judging the people a prime prime example of this was uh Found in, in First Kings, where Solomon, the son of David, becomes king. He builds this beautiful palace, uh, this incredible, huge throne uh, that that he is manufactured for him or created for him. Um, and and there he is sitting. And some of you might remember the story there in the old, in, in, in First Kings, where two prostitutes are brought before him, and uh, and their babies have died. And Solomon, to demonstrate his wisdom that God has given him, uh, makes an incredible pronouncement uh, at that time. There he is acting uh, as the king, giving judgment for the people, uh, in front of the people. And so that's what we have being described here in, in the sense it's not an elaborate throne that, that, uh, that Solomon had, but it's that portable throne representing the seat of God where God meets with the people. James, you want to add? Or do you want to talk further about the,
0: the mercy seat? Just keep us moving? Yeah. I, and this is the part that I think excites me most, that we have to bear in mind the law that was given, the Ten Commandments, is you know, so utterly foundational to that faith, to us, to all of like Western creation right now. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments have sat as so important for so long, what I think is beautiful and fascinating and I love about this is that whilst the law is in the box, God's mercy is above it. Over and over and over again, we see, and we see this inscription, I don't know how many times God has to kind of drill it into us, that again, laws are important and foundational, but my mercy covers that. Um, We use that word like atonement cover. Atonement is this weird word. It's literally at-one-ment. So if we are not like united, or if there is a debt between us, we're not at-one-ment. That word became obsolete a long time ago. But now we are at one man, and so this idea that this is the place where the people become at one with God—they become equal again. They become, uh, yeah, the, the debts are erased and the sin is gone uh, every time. I just, I just love this image of God's mercy always being above even the laws, and that's so important. And uh, I'm one of the things I just keep on coming back to this week is that. Yeah, like God is sitting on that throne, and the judgment he come, like the judgment he issues is mercy, over and over and over and over again, because of his desire for that at one moment, his desire to be with people, he has issued a judgment, and the judgment is mercy.
1: This is where, I, again, like James says, I start to get excited because this is this is communion with God that we are one with God. This is the symbol that, that reminds us over and over again uh, that, that God invites us, to, he reaches out to us to, to come and, and, and be a part, um, to have this, this relationship. There's, we remember all the stuff that separate us from that relationship with God. But the covenant seat reminds us that it's all cleared. Um, you want to talk a little bit about
0: uh, Yom Kippur? Oh, only a tiny bit. <laughs> yeah, just, just. We're just ripping through this because uh, uh, then we made a bunch of notes. Um, a, a, but each um, once a year, uh, you would have two lambs. We might talk more about this at Easter because I think it's interesting. But you, the high priest would issue a sacrifice. Uh, so that's the lamb of God who is slain. So you have a lamb who is slain and their blood is sprinkled on the altar and that helps the people become at one. Uh, and then you have a lamb that is let into the desert. That's the scapegoat. So you have the lamb who takes on the sins of the world. That's the lamb that walks away. And you have the lamb who was slain to make us uh, one again. And the wonderful thing, Jesus is both. Lamb is, he is the lamb who is slain, and he's also the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Uh, and that's why we don't need those sacrifices anymore, because it's all done. It's all, we are atoned. That there is mercy. That judgment has been pronounced again. Now, now, back in, in Moses' day, the law that
1: was given was that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the inner sanctuary where, the, where this covenant box is sitting and would sprinkle it seven times with blood. So we stop and think again. This image that that James was just talking about, of of the of of the two lambs, um, and that and that here on the covenant box, that's where the blood was sprinkled in particular. Now, growing up in the church that I grew up in, um, at the uh, there was the pulpit at the front, and below it was sort of steps, but really it was a bench. And in, in the church I grew up in, that, was, that bench was called the mercy seat. Anybody else have that in your church? Because when so I first came here, right <laughs> sometimes they, they would have altar calls uh, here at, at Banfield and people would come forward to the front. Um, and sometimes it was referred to as the mercy seat. Now, you gotta understand, I was a teenager and there was Saturday night before Sunday morning and so, and church was a lot about guilt. And so the preacher would give the sermon and I'd be thinking about what I was doing on Saturday night. And, it was t- and then there was the altar call to come to the mercy seat and receive forgiveness. Well, I spent too much time there. <laughs> but there was also the, this whole issue of, like, I also knew what my friends were doing. Or, and, and so wondering, like, who's going to go first and who's actually feeling the guilt? Um, and, and, and then somebody else would go forward that you didn't know what they did. And so gossip started as a result of the mercy seat. So we're going to do that right now uh, if you <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let the gossip begin. <laughs> but, but what that does is, is it creates a, a, a theology of knowing God that's based on guilt. Not mercy. So I think I think what we want to do is, is talk, move away from that and, and really start to talk about what mercy is, uh, the, the, the beautiful symbol of it. Um, and so in, in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language is this beautiful word chesed. It's found almost 250 times, 248 times there in the Old Testament. And, and if there's only one word you want to learn I- in Hebrew, it's chesed. Because it's all about this incredible relationship we have with God. James, you want to explain a little bit more about, about that word? I feel you did the study
0: on that. You take it, Bill. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> you I don't hug the chesed, it, in front this, of you. <laughs> this, this <is> <laughs>
1: Sometimes it's translated as steadfast loving kindness. Steadfast, loving kindness, that God will always hold on to us tightly. That God looks upon us kindly, not with judgment, but with this continuous love that never, ever lets us go. That's hesed. And that's why we need to learn that word over and over again, because so often we're being told the opposite, that God wants to let us go. That, that that God is a God of judgment, that God is an angry God. Um, but he, here's some of the different ways it's translated. Mercy, kindness, loving kindness, goodness, merciful, favor, goodliness. And, 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 and so it has this this all-positive kind of understanding of of how God... Uh, reaches out to us, the chesed of God, your steadfast loving kindness uh, endures forever and ever. We're going to come back and talk about that.
0: One um, piece for me, as as Bill said there, that uh, I think a lot of the times and depending on the church in which you were raised we're kind of told about this God that loves us but also seems very mad a lot of the time and is very disappointed in us a lot of the time and you know it seems to be far more aware of the things you've done wrong than the things you've done right uh, and it's like again wants to forgive us but like really wants to take his time about it <laughs> like, I want to make sure you feel really bad about the thing that you did and um, one of the whenever I get into these conversations about, like, that doesn't seem to be the God that I see revealed in Scripture a lot of the time, and often people will say, well, God's ways are just above your ways, and you don't get it. I'm like, which is, I think that's used as a kind of deus ex machina for a lot of people, like, well, God's ways aren't like our ways. And so when it seems that God is acting in a way that isn't, like, loving or merciful, we go, well, God's ways aren't like our ways. I think maybe we've been in positions where, again, life is hard or difficult, uh, and people say, well, you know, we can't understand God's ways. And, and again, it's used as this kind of get-out-of-jail-free card for hard conversations. Um, but what I love about that idea of God's ways and not our ways is, you, let's spend some time, as, just a moment, I suppose, As so in what ways are God's ways higher than mine, and what ways are God's thoughts higher than mine? That's is from Isaiah 55, uh, which says, you know, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. Uh, as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So people go, well, we just can't know God and I guess he's mad and that's okay. But the, again, like, the verse before this, like I'm not, this isn't a copy and paste. It's literally just Isaiah 55. It's one piece together. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy On them and to our God for he will freely pardon for my ways are not for my thoughts are not your thoughts my ways are not your ways like that entire purpose of that passage is to remember that God's mercy is so beyond our comprehension of what mercy is like so even some you think of the most merciful thing that you can think of it's not even close and 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 maybe our ways are the ways of judgment and condemnation (laughs) and guilt. But God is saying, no, my way is not your way. I'm like really into mercy. (laughs) I am really into mercy. Like I've sat on the throne, the judgment is mercy. I don't know how many times I can say this. (laughs) I I think of how many times I've I've
1: read the first few books or chapters of Genesis. Mm -hmm. And only very recently, like the, the last two years, I'm reading through, and so Genesis chapter two, Talks about the creation and the Garden of Eden, and there is the the tree of life. And then Adam is told, Do not eat of that tree, because if you eat of that tree, that day you will die. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve eat of the tree of life, or the knowledge of good and evil. Sorry, there's the two trees. And they don't die. Like, what's going on? Like, God, you just finished saying
0: in a chapter earlier. He gave one instruction, don't eat this fruit, you'll die. They eat it, they don't. Mm -hmm. So, like, either God, like, breaks God's word, or God is a liar, I don't think that's true, or God is more merciful than we can imagine.
1: And then chapter four, he does it again. (laughs) Like, Cain goes and kills his brother, and the punishment for murder is death. And instead of killing Cain, God puts a mark on him not, to, not so everybody knows what, what the wrong thing he did, like the Scarlet Letter, for those that had, read that had to read that book. It's a mark to protect him, like God is protecting the murderer. This is the God, this is in the first four chapters, God is saying to everybody, yeah, I'm a God of justice, but really, I'm a, and even more so, I'm a God of mercy. I I want you to know this right at the very, very beginning, that you'd understand that I'm a God of mercy. That's why I get excited about
0: this. (laughs) I think we are running out of time and I knew we would. I think one of the things we want to... I'm looking at Bill's notes, and we're like a quarter of the way into them. Or something. We should have seen this coming. I think one of the reasons this is so kind of punchy for us, as we say, is that in the book of Exodus, that has these great displays of power, and we really see it. You know, if God wanted to be seen as a God of power or might or strength, then he could. You know, the the most powerful God in Egypt, the God of the sun, God just says three words. Let the... Wait, wait. wait four words Mm -hmm. let there be darkness yeah four words just says four words let there be darkness and the sun stops shining like that's how powerful god is and yet the thing that he chooses it's not a power cover or a strength cover or even a miracle cover it's a mercy cover because that's how important that is that even though the story has these incredible displays of power that's less what god wants to be known for actually that's really interesting to me too
1: and, and the times that the word chesed is used in, in Exodus, God is telling the people who he is. And, and, and God says, um, yes, I will punish the, the wicked to the third and fourth generation. But I will demonstrate my mercy for thousands of generations. Like three or four for, for those that mess up. But he's going to th- show and uh, demonstrate his mercy for thousands of generations. I don't know what you. That's my God.
0: <laughs> that's the God I want to believe in. mean <laughs> that's well. Again, let's just take God at His word. Like He literally yeah. says, "This is who I am." We're like, "All right, well, maybe." Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I trust so, what God says about Himself. Um,
1: can we wrap up with it, Revelation? Yeah, hit me. Okay, so, so we're going to fast forward because... To there, the end of things. <laughs> yeah, because there, there's all this teaching about mercy all throughout almost every book of the Old and New Testaments. And then we, then we get to, to Revelation where we are taken back now to the throne of God because that's where we started with, right? We're talking about the mercy seat, the throne of God. And there in Revelation, in chapter 4 and 5, and then again in chapter 7, and then in chapter 21, we are to, we're told that the Lamb of God, the slain Lamb of God, I looked and I, John says, I looked and I saw that the Lamb was slain, the one whose blood was sprinkled on the, off, on the altar, or on, sorry, on, on the throne. That Lamb of God is now sitting on the throne, and everyone from every tribe, every nation, everybody is now singing praise to the God who is represented as the slain Lamb of God. (laughs) What does that do to you? When you stop and think about who this is, the Lamb of God is sitting on the throne that is the mercy seat. It's Yes, we talk about the, 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 the book of life is opened up and people are judged according to their deeds and the one who is reading it is the God of all mercy, the Hesed God, the one who forgives for, for, for thousands of generations is the one who is doing the, the judging. I got hope. Forget my teenage years.
0: <laughs>
1: Forget the years of, that have gone on since then. You have hope. This is the God that we're talking about.
0: You wanna end? I, I thought the story that you had about the funeral recently would be a better oh, end point. Oh, sure. So, is that okay?
1: So part of, so I, I, I do funerals when asked, people I know or people I knew. Um, and so I, uh, one of the seniors from Young Street Mission had, who I, I knew that her family had passed on just a, about a month ago, and the granddaughter f- called me up, and and I remember her as a little girl, and and uh, and she said, "We'd love to have you come and 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 lead the funeral for my, my grandmother." Now this is a Regent Park family. This is one of the tougher Regent Park families, and um, and and I knew some of their background, and, and they've had their share of pain and suffering, and uh, and so I I know that there's one or two believers, Christians in the family, and the rest, there's lots of questions about their lifestyle, to put it gently. And I'm thinking, what do I say to them? Because they, she said, can you give us a message of hope? And what passage is read over and over again at funerals? Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 ends with, Surely goodness and mercy hey, they paid attention. shall yeah. follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When we stop and think about this passage and being read at funerals, knowing full well that, that, that the vast majority of those people at, at the funeral are not what we call believers in Jesus, What more hope can we give them except that surely goodness and mercy shall follow them all the days of their life because the God who judges me, the Christian, is also the God who's going to judge them and they can have hope in that same God. It changes our whole perspective on what evangelism is. I mean, do we want to bring good news that you're you're going to hell or do we want to bring good news but... There's a God of all compassion who loves you with an everlasting love who will never ever let you go and will hold on tight to you and wants to have a right relationship with you that's based on, the, on this Hessed, merciful love. And so that's the message I brought them. And I looked out and tough people. And I saw tears coming to their eyes. And afterwards, the two toughest ones came up to me afterwards. And they're still wiping away the tears and they're saying that's just the message i needed to hear today he said thank you you gave me hope and so that's the message we have that's the good news of jesus christ that god is a god of mercy that is everlasting that is from endures from generation to generation and so when we come to to Psalm 136 where it repeats over and over again his love his mercy his steadfast love endures forever let's pray God we give you great thanks because we can come to your mercy seat trusting that that you meet us there and you reach out with everlasting arms of love and you hold us tight and never let us go and may we be be people who bear that message to the world that needs to hear a message of hope and love and forgiveness and mercy. Amen.